Blog Talk Radio. People tell real stories of addiction and recovery. Tonight I'm here with my co-host, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. How are you tonight? Hey, Amanda. Great. Thank you. Good to hear your voice. Um, so tonight we are going to discuss what science tells us about the effectiveness of 12-step treatment and other mutual help organizations in addiction and recovery. The most widely recognized 12-step recovery organizations globally are Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. Most people who seek to get and stay sober are referred to a 12-step recovery program at some point, and some people resist attending based on fear, shame, or the idea that 12-step programs don't work. Even within the 12-step recovery community, there is discussion sometimes about the effectiveness of these programs. Statistics are thrown around both for and against, but what does science say? How effective are these programs? If you participate in a 12-step recovery program, are considering participating, or believe they don't work but are curious to learn more, this show is for you. So we are honored to have Dr. John Kelly as our guest tonight to discuss this with us. Dr. Kelly is an Elizabeth R. Spallin Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School the founder and director of the Recovery Research Institute at the Massachusetts General Hospital, the program director of the Addiction Recovery Management Service, and the associate director of the Center for Addiction Medicine at Mass General Hospital. Hello, Dr. Kelly. Welcome back to the Bubble Hour. Hi. Well, thank you for having me. Great to be back. Well, we thoroughly enjoyed the last show that you were on, and we uh, promised to have you back and hope to have you back again after this show, too. Um, To start off, some. Oh, great. (laughs) Um, Some of our listeners may not have um, heard about your institute before, so I was wondering if you could tell us about the Recovery Research Institute and its mission and your role there. Thank you. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Yeah. So we started this Recovery Research Institute um, back in, uh, launched it in October 2013, so uh, about a year ago. Uh, And we were fortunate to have uh, Michael Botticelli, who's the current acting director of the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy, come up and open the institute for us and make a keynote speech, which we were delighted about. Obviously, that that was a big deal for us. And um, so he helped launch the event at a press event. And the idea behind the Institute really is to uh, to summarize and synthesize and disseminate the research, the scientific research, on what we know about recovery, uh, recovery support services, including mutual health groups, which is the topic tonight, and to really present uh, the scientific literature in a way that people can understand it and use it, both in terms, uh, you know, in terms of policy making, 
in terms of clinical service provision and clinical administration, and also for people who are in and seeking recovery who may want factual, fact-based information on uh, what we understand and know about recovery, recovery support services, uh, as well as treatment services. And so that's really the goal of it. So you can check it out. It's recoveryanswers.org is the URL. So it's www.recoveryanswers.org. So it's a pretty easy one to remember. Um, And if you go to the website, you'll find all kinds of information. You can sign up for the newsletter. Uh, We send out a newsletter uh, It's uh, every two to four weeks. Uh, which updates the scientific literature on recovery and recovery support services. So I would uh, encourage people to go check it out, sign up, and get the free newsletter and uh, keep informed, keep up to date. And um, that's one of the major thrusts of the of the Institute. Excellent. Well, I um, we will certainly post a link to that um, when we post the show as well, and I think there is one on the announcement for the show. Um, and I and I spent quite a bit of time on it myself, and there's really just tons of fascinating and helpful information on there. So I do um, really encourage people to check it out. Um, so getting into the topic, what does science tell us about the effectiveness of 12-step treatment and other mutual help organizations um, in re- in addiction and recovery? Well, a lot, quite a lot, actually. A lot more has happened in the last 25 years than all the all the period of time that's gone before that. And part of the reason why uh, this has happened is because back in 1990, the Institute of Medicine of the National Academy of Sciences, which is a, obviously a very prestigious body in the United States, called for more research. Uh, specifically on Alcoholics Anonymous and its mechanisms. Uh, At that time, it published a book, uh, a large volume, called Broadening the Base of Treatment for Alcohol Problems. And um, it recognized the fact that Alcoholics Anonymous was this massive entity in the United States and and all over the world, actually, in many countries, uh, that... in which it had had grown and been uh, disseminated and implemented... Um, but at that time, the, the quality of the evidence supporting AA uh, was not good. It was pretty poor. The, the follow-ups were poor. The, the, the metrics, the measures that were used in the studies that had been done, even though there had been you know, probably a couple of hundred empirical studies, research studies done on AA, the quality of the evidence was not uh, good. So it said, look, we've got to um, do more research on this because... Even at that time, it was, and it is still, the most frequently sought source of help for alcohol and drug problems in the United States, AA, NA, groups like that. Um, It's reckoned by SAMHSA that about 5 million people attend these groups every single year. That's far higher than the number that offend, that that, not offend, that attend, excuse me, that attend uh, attend treatment. Um, And um, so... You know, what that did back then was that it really legitimized serious scientific investigation into Alcoholics Anonymous and similar mutual help organizations. And it was backed up by appropriations, funding, money from the National Institutes of Health and the Department, uh, Department of Veterans Affairs. So that both of those big uh, bodies said, look, okay, we're going to fund research in this. We want people to step up to the plate 
give us good good study designs, rigorous study designs, so we can evaluate the effectiveness of AA. And also, by extension, 12-step treatment, because 12-step treatment really had not been evaluated very rigorously either at that time. Um, and so what that did was it meant that a lot of people who were researching in the alcohol and drug field came out and wrote applications and got funded to do studies. One of the biggest ones uh, was a treatment study, actually, uh, which started in the 1990s called Project Match. And Project Match was the largest psychotherapy trial ever done in the world. It was 1,726 patients. These were alcohol-dependent patients. And they were randomly assigned to receive one of three different individually delivered treatments for alcoholism. One was uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. One was motivational enhancement therapy, which was based on motivational interviewing. And then another one was called 12-step facilitation. And this was a brand new term which which was coined for this particular study. And essentially what it was, because it's very difficult to study AA itself, uh, because of the you know the the uh, policies of anonymity and so on, and AA doesn't really have a centralized structure. It makes research on AA difficult, uh, it, but you know studying it itself. So the way that they did it was to develop a treatment which was designed explicitly to link patients to AA. And so this was a kind of an indirect test. It wasn't a test of AA actually itself, but it was a kind of an indirect test of a treatment that could potentially get people involved with AA and then did that did getting people involved in AA improve their outcomes. So these were the three different uh three oh. different arms of the trial. There was a cognitive behavioral therapy, as I said, a motivational enhancement therapy and twelve step. So a lot of people thought at the beginning of the trial that cognitive behavioral therapy was going to be the champion just because it was it was a lot of empirical support uh, and research support already for cognitive behavioral therapy as kind of a gold standard. And then people thought that motivational interviewing and motivational enhancement therapy was going to do well as well because that was based on, again, sound psychological theory and had a lot of good support for its efficacy. And many people thought that um, 12-step facilitation would not do very well, and it would be shown uh, to be, you know, an, basically a, a not very effective therapy. So uh, this was, again, it was a big study, multi-site clinical trial across nine sites in the United States. What was surprising to many people when the results came out was uh, was how well 12-step facilitation did. In fact, it was as good as the best treatments available, and it was actually better. It was the best treatment in terms of producing uh, continuous abstinence. So about twice as many patients were completely abstinent who were treated in 12-step facilitation than were treated in CBT or uh, the motivational enhancement therapy, uh, both at one year and three years after treatment. It was roughly double the number of patients that were continuously asked. So this was quite surprising to many people. And the reason when people looked, investigated, why was it that people did as well or better in 12-step, it was because they were attending 12-step meetings in the post-treatment period, which, of course, is the goal of all 12-step treatment. So this was uh, an eye-opener to many people. Um, it has since been replicated in several randomized controlled trials 
that have been published and funded by the National Institutes of Health and the Department of Veterans Affairs. And these are studies, once again, where cause and effect is very clear because patients are randomized to receive either a 12-step-based uh, treatment or some other comparison condition, usually a version of cognitive behavioral therapy. And in each one of those studies, they've found that the uh, 12-step facilitation treatment typically does as well, or where there are differences, it outperforms other comparison treatments by about 10 to 20%. In other words, it produces about 10 to 20% greater abstinent days in those who receive 12-step facilitation than other kinds of treatments. And again, the reason why when they've investigated is because people are getting involved in these community groups like AA and NA. Now, uh, the, the question is, is, is how come? Now, what is it about these groups that produces this additional benefit? And what we've learned also, because we've done a lot of research, and I've done a lot of research in this area, which is looking at mechanisms of behavior change. So what is it? What are the things that AA and NA, what are the, what are the factors that are mobilized by participation in these groups? What are the cognitive and behavioral factors, if you will, that are mobilized? What are the social, if there are social network changes, are they mobilized by participation in AA? And what we have found, in fact, that AA and groups similar like NA and 12-step groups in general, they mobilize the same kinds of mechanisms as are mobilized by formal treatment. What we see is that people who go to AA and NA increase their cognitive and behavioral coping skills so they're able to better cope with relapse risks. They boost their confidence in their ability to cope with 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 depression and anxiety without drinking. They boost people's confidence in their ability to cope with high-risk social situations without drinking. They help reduce depression symptoms. Uh, they help people change their social network. They help people drop heavy drinkers and drug users from the network. And they also help people adopt abstainers in their social network, which makes it easier to stay away from uh, high-risk uh, environments, of course, because now you're hanging around with people who are sober. It makes avoidance of those high-risk situations, people, places, and things associated with drinking and drug use. It reduces it, those occasions, so that helps people to stay sober. And it also boosts spiritual practices, and that's another mechanism, behavior change, we found through which AA confers its benefit. Now, what does that mean when people are praying and meditating more? What it seems to be is that it helps people cope with stresses. It helps people reframe stress so that where stress once stood for being just a nuisance and a, and a negative aspect, now stress becomes a spur to growth. It's, a, it's a, an opportunity, an occasion that stimulates positivity instead of negativity. And so the spiritual framework of AA and 12-step organizations helps reframe that stress uh, to something that was negative into something that was positive and helps buffer uh, uh, these negative uh, occasions when they when they come up. So um, I know I've been talking. Were you going to ask a question, Amanda? Sorry, I, I, I talked there for quite a while. Well, this is Catherine. I, I actually was just wondering if the is the spiritual framework something that contributed to some of the skeptic skepticism going into the studies. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of people just did not take uh, 12-step uh, uh, seriously. Uh, they didn't take it seriously. I think a lot of people, academic psychologists and academic researchers, really did not think that 12-step would do as well as cognitive behavioral therapy in these trials. Um, they thought that CBT was going to be the winner. And they were surprised. They were very surprised. And I've been in the room with many of them when some of these results came out. And people were very, very shocked. They were very surprised and shocked um, that, um, that, it, that they did as well. And it could have been that the, you know, the spiritual emphasis, uh, overtly and ostensibly spiritual emphasis in 12-step, um, was people found that hard to kind of take from an academic psychological standpoint. But what it turns out is that, actually, as I mentioned, is it turns out that AA does a good job. It does mobilize these spiritual practices and, 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 and is centered, of course, around a spiritual framework. But what it actually does as well is that it boosts people's cognitions, you know, their ability to think better and cope better. Boosts, it changes their behavior, and it helps them shift their social network to one that is more conducive and supportive of long-term sobriety. So as well as the spiritual framework, it produces these much more terrestrial and mundane aspects of behavior change. And AA is very effective at mobilizing those changes. Yeah, I mean, it might be worth mentioning, too, for our listeners who are not familiar with the 12 <laughs> steps that they're sort of you know, based on admitting that we're powerless over alcohol, our lives become un unmanageable, and then sort of turning ourselves over to a greater, a power greater than ourselves who can restore us to sanity. And then it, it gets into sort of cleaning up our past behavior and making amends and then doing service by carrying the message to other people um, in recovery, including uh, prayer and meditation as being one of the steps. And it's, I think it's, this, it's fascinating to me that the founders of AA found that they couldn't stay sober alone, but then the only thing that worked for them was hanging out together and talking about it. And we're always talking about that on the show. Last week's episode was all about building community. So it's this is really interesting to hear those numbers that you're saying that are correlating with, you know, because attending meetings post-treatment um, kind of builds that. I, I love that term, mutual help groups, um, you know, building confidence and, and coping skills, that's, it's nice to hear it all validated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that's what I think that a lot of the research that's been done in the last 25 years has really validated a lot of the um, concepts and practices that uh, AA and 12-step has espoused for, you know, the past 70 years. It's really starting to emerge and validate, uh, validate that. Uh, now, one of the things that I often talk about, which is a nice paper, uh, is, is a letter written between Bill Wilson, who is the co-founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, and Carl Jung, who um, mm. was kind of, uh, you know, uh, was attributed to uh, being kind of partially, you know, responsible or helpful in the founding of AA, although he didn't himself know anything about it. But Bill Wilson wrote him a letter 
back in 1961, and in the letter he thanked Carl Jung for treating a person who, in the lineage of AA, ended up kind of uh, helping create this chain of events that led to the founding of AA. And Carl Jung was very grateful uh, in his letter back to uh, Bill Wilson, was thanking Bill Wilson for writing to him and thanking him and letting him know that he was, um, uh, you know, partly uh, was was being, you know, um, uh, thanked for his participation. And he did remember this person that um, whose name was Roland Hazard, who he treated. Um, and he said to Bill Wilson in this letter, and it always uh, resonated with me, this term that he used, because he said there were two main ways that people, in his experience and observation as a clinician, uh, recovered from addiction, severe addiction problems. One was what he called was through real religious insight. And the other one was through the protective wall of human community, characterized mm-hmm. by sincere and honest contact with friends. So that protective wall of human wow. community, I think, is a is one that I think it captures the essence. I mean, both of those, uh, of course, are embedded and, and fundamental to AA and 12-step, is this notion of real religious insight, which I think is this notion of putting it into action, doing things, um, in, 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 you know, acting on, on those spiritual principles, putting them into action, which AA does very well. But... Uh, the other one is this uh, this protective wall of human community, which I think all mutual help groups share, um, but certainly AA, of course, being the, the kind of the grandfather in the modern era of mutual help, uh, definitely could be construed to, to be this protective wall of human community, which really helps people to uh, incubate and recover and grow in recovery. So is the difference then with something like CBT, because if I... If I go for my CBT treatment, I'm doing that on my own with my clinician and not with a whole protective wall. Is I'm not real. I am a 12-stepper, but I'm not familiar with some of the other modes that you mentioned. Is that the difference? Yeah, this is man- <clears throat> I was actually going to ask if you could um, explain um, cognitive, you know, CBT and motivational therapy. And twelve step, just in you know general terms for our listeners, um, and actually for me too. I mean, <laughs> I understand them. I think I understand them, but I'd, I'd like just um, how those different programs work. Sure. Yeah. Well. Well, CBT, uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, really addresses um, the uh, skills. It's, it basically has an assumption that people cannot stop. They cannot stop drinking or using drugs uh, because they don't know how to stay sober. They don't have the skills. And so one of the main main aspects of cognitive behavioral therapy is to give people, teach people the skills to understand the dynamics of their uh, drug and alcohol use. So we'll be looking at a, um, a, you know, kind of what they call a functional analysis. In other words, what's the function behind their alcohol and drug use? It will look at triggers. We'll look at triggers uh, that, that trigger alcohol and drug use and help people to either avoid those triggers or find alternative ways of coping with those triggers. So it's fundamentally uh, a therapy which focuses on building confidence and coping skills to cope with uh, triggers that people will encounter in sobriety. Um, and uh, so it's very skills-based. It's very prescriptive. In other words, you know, the, the therapist will, will 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 coach people to tell people, help them practice skills, and so on. 
With motivational uh, enhancement therapy, it's a very different approach. There's no skill, there's no transference of skills. The assumption behind that therapy is that uh, really the person themselves already has the knowledge and the skills of what they need to do uh, to change their behavior. But what they lack is is the right is the right context, the right environment in which that person can be um, led to believe or, or can realize themselves um, that they really do have these skills. It's just that they are ambivalent about deploying those skills. And so the fundamental essence, the fundamental goal of motivational enhancement therapy is to help people muster and build that intrinsic motivation to make a decision and a commitment towards change, adaptive change, and that is abstinence and recovery in, in this context. Um, and so it's about it's a very client-centered approach. You'll be focusing on what do you think is the right thing for you to do and how can I help you do that. It's all about listening to the, to the patient or client and helping them talk through their, their, their ambivalence and helping them resolve their ambivalence so that they can start to uh, change their behavior and mobilize the intrinsic resources um, and uh, skills that they uh, are assumed to already have. And then 12-step facilitation, 12-step uh, facilitation has been tested actually in, in many different forms. But uh, most essentially what it's about is getting people, while they're in treatment, coaching them to become involved in AA and similar 12-step groups. So the, the idea with the, 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 the therapist would be talking about meetings, what are AA meetings, uh, maybe, you know, how did AA start, what's the etiquette of meetings, what might you expect at your first meeting, uh, what's a sponsor, what are the steps, kind of indoctrinating and teaching people about the kind of the, the culture of, uh, of AA, and then having them go to meetings. So a therapist might say, I'd like, you, I'd like you to get to three meetings over the next week, and when we meet next week, uh, let's talk about your experience at those three meetings. And they're encouraged oftentimes to keep a little a journal or a little diary of their experiences, and they bring that back into the therapist and talk about it. Um, they may be encouraged to get a sponsor. They may be encouraged to uh, speak up at meetings, to, to share at meetings, things like this, which we know are um, uh, helpful to people feeling more a part of and belonging in an organization like AA. And so um, that's, that's basically the differences between one's a skilled you know, building skills. The other one is resolving ambivalence about change, assuming that someone does have the skills. That's MET, motivational enhancement. And then 12-step is really about having people just get involved in AA as a free community resource that, again, can mobilize the same kinds of uh, uh, changes that are mobilized by things like CBT, actually. I wonder... Does that make sense? Uh, you know, this, yeah, definitely. Those, they all sound... They all sound fascinating, um, and this idea of am the ambivalence to change, the ambivalence to get sober, that strikes a chord with me because I know that was my experience for many years when I was thinking, mm -hmm. I have to change, I have to change. Um, I don't know if that's common for everybody, but it's certainly it's something I think that we hear a lot on the show and, and I've heard um, from other people in recovery, so it's 
it, it seems to me that any one of these methods kind of gets at that ambivalence to the extent that it, it is a common characteristic. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, just something for sure. that struck a chord. Yeah. So you you mentioned that the the studies did uh, one in three years. Am I am I getting that right in terms of success be, yep. rate? That was one of that was one of the one of the studies. Yeah, did a three year follow up. A one in three year follow up. Yep. That was the okay. biggest one. The project project match. There have been several others since then um, that have shown this ten to twenty percent uh, you know advantage from linking patients with with 12-step groups. So is there a difference in the 12 steps effectiveness for sort of that real early recovery versus longer term? Yeah, most of the, you know, most of the the studies that have been done actually are not long-term studies. They're typically in these clinical trials where they're testing a therapy designed to engage patients with community groups like AA. Um, they are done. They typically only have a, a one-year, one-year follow-up. Um, other studies that have looked at it was unusual, in fact, for that study to have a three-year follow-up. And they, they had a three-year follow-up, and as I mentioned, uh, patients who were treated in 12-step actually had much higher rates of continuous abstinence. Um, <clears throat> but other studies, naturalistic studies, show uh, these are less. They're less strong in their causal you know, effect. It's harder to conclude a cause and effect because they're non-randomized. But what these studies show, in carefully conducted, uh, using other methods other than randomization to rule out uh, other possibility, other, other causes of sobriety, what they find is that, once again, people who are attending and become actively involved in AA and similar groups have substantially better outcomes over the long term. And these, uh, the longest study that I'm aware of is, is up through 16 years uh, after uh, beginning uh, a, a study, uh, beginning in a study. So 16-year follow-up show, um, show uh, substantial benefits, substantially higher rates of sobriety, continuous abstinence, um, and um, from participation in groups uh, like AA. One of the, one of the other things uh, to especially nowadays to mention, which I haven't mentioned yet, but is definitely important, is this issue of healthcare cost offset. So one of the things about AA and all mutual health groups actually is that they are free, except for voluntary contributions. Now, given given that these 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 uh, mutual health groups actually can confer a benefit which is on par with professional treatment, that's what's been shown, uh, is that they produce a benefit that's on par with professional treatment. Uh, that's pretty potent. So uh, one, one interesting mm-hmm. question is, if we, can, if we can link patients with these groups like AA, does it actually reduce reliance on formal healthcare services? Because now people are going to AA, they're not going to a cognitive behavioral therapy session, which costs, you know, $150. So this has been looked at, and there was a big study that was done by Keith Humphreys and Rudolph Moose in the, in the VA. And what they did was that they compared patients treated in two types of programs, and there were roughly a couple of thousand patients in this study, and they followed them up for two years. Half the patients were treated in cognitive behavioral residential programs. The other half were treated in 12-step residential programs. And they looked over this two-year period after treatment, 
uh, with patients coming from these two different types of programs. They looked at their um, their substance use outcomes, their psychiatric outcomes. They also looked at their health service utilization, so how much health care did they use in the two years after treatment, and how much AA and NA did they use. What they found, as you might expect, is that patients coming from 12-step oriented treatment programs went to AA more and NA more. They were more likely to get a sponsor and get involved. Um, patients coming from the CBT programs, residential programs, uh, the other half of the patients, they were more likely to utilize uh, formal health care services. So they're more likely to have therapy sessions. They used more inpatient days, more outpatient days. Now, interestingly, when you look at their baseline, uh, their intake characteristics, they were the same. So there was no difference in their clinical profiles between these two sets of patients. So they were equally as bad or severe clinically and no demographic, no demographic differences. So there was no differences at intake, even though patients in the CBT programs utilized more uh, formal health care services than did patients coming from these 12-step treatment programs. What was interesting was that there was no difference in outcomes across these two different programs except that patients treated in the 12-step treatment programs were about one-third more likely to be abstinent, continuously abstinent, at one year and two years after treatment. Now, so they were more likely to be abstinent and they were they cost the healthcare system less. And in fact, it, it saved the healthcare system about eight thousand dollars per patient wow. uh, over the over the two year oh. period. Now, if you translate that into the number of patients that were just treated in these programs, that's a savings of about fifteen million dollars for that healthcare system over that two year period from linking patients to twelve step groups as opposed to not doing that. Now, that's very compelling because you're actually producing better outcomes at a savings of about 10 to $15 million. That's the kind of double whammy, double benefit that we're looking for with smarter, leaner healthcare system that can, uh, you know, produce higher quality outcomes at, at a lower cost. And so because of these kinds of data now that have been uh, produced, there's been a push uh, in fact, Massachusetts General Hospital, where I work, uh, has made substance use disorder the top priority of the hospital because it is such a burden, high-cost burden on the healthcare system. And what we are doing is we are employing recovery coaches. These are quote-unquote recovery coaches. These are people in recovery who uh, they're, they're they're like a, a recovering peer who's employed to link patients to these free community resources like AA because we know how cost-effective that can be because of these studies that have been done looking at 12-step uh, facilitation and its ability to confer a superior outcome at a lower price, lower health care cost. So this is very important with health care reform and all the changes that are going on in the healthcare system nationwide with more accountable care and so on. Wow, I mean these numbers are just they're staggering and I have to say the the cost of it never even occurred to me. And so do those dollars that eight thousand per patient that's just over the long term or does that also count um what the cost of relapse would be? I don't know if it gets that granular, but Yeah, well those you know, it was an eight thousand dollar saving per patient for those treated coming from the twelve step treatment programs, and they were one-third more likely to be abstinent. Wow. So, so there were one-third higher abstinence. Wow. Yeah, so, so not, not only 
were they saving money, but they were more likely to be abstinent than patients, continuously abstinent than patients treated coming from the cognitive behavioral pro- programs. So, you know, what that suggests is that it's a good idea for healthcare systems to try and link patients who have this chronic relapsing disorder, which we call addiction, to, you know, communities of recovery that they can get involved in. Again, not everybody's going to go, but even when you do this, and knowing that not everybody's going to go, you can get enough people to go that you can still produce this higher uh, remission rate and uh, lower lower healthcare costs. That's that you know this is this is kind of from um left field but I I was at the recovery rally on Monday and talking to an attorney who deals with um people in recovery a lot and he was we were just having a discussion about um the court system and the court systems you know some court systems which I happen to experience myself will um <clears throat> refer people who are you know, convicted of, you know, a drug or alcohol type of charge, and they'll, you know, have mandatory AA treatment where someone convicted of the same thing in the next town um, doesn't, you know, isn't mandated to go to any any meetings at all. And I just, I find that fascinating, aggravating. I don't, I you know, I'm all over the place on how I feel about it. Is there any thought of, I think it's fantastic that there's a push um, to have, um, you know, to have to in, incorporate twelve-step programs into treatment facilities. Um, is there any talk of um, educating the court systems? Um, because that's a huge. Uh, you know, I just you know when you talk about the yeah. costs, I just think that the costs associated with that are are uh, astronomical. Right on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the things is that you know when you when you look across the state, there's a lot of variability. Just like you say, lot tremendous variability in how cases are processed. You know, the same case can be processed very differently in one region or one town, and uh, completely differently in another. And that's that's not good. I mean, it, we should be basing our practices on on research and on science. Now, one of the things that we don't know a whole lot is, you know, how well do individuals do? in the criminal justice system if they're mandated to go to AA. We don't know the answer to that question as well as we do with these other clinical studies that I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, we need more more research in these areas in the criminal justice because, you know, about, uh, you know, a, a, a very large proportion of, of individuals in the criminal justice system have an alcohol or drug addiction problem, a large proportion. Uh, and um, and for those people, the criminal justice system can provide access to care uh, earlier than they would normally get it because they have the leverage and uh, they can they can mandate people get treatment. And we do know in general that mandated treatment works as well as voluntary treatment. In fact, when you look in the literature for mandated people who are mandated treatment by the criminal justice system, their outcomes are as good, if not better than people who come really? in more voluntarily. Yeah, which is kind of counterintuitive. But part of the reason when we've done studies to look at this, part of the reason why people who are mandated treatment do as well, if not better, is because they're actually less sick when they come into treatment than people who come in more voluntarily. 
And so their clinical profile is better and their prognosis is a little bit better. So when you look at them over time, you find that their outcomes actually are, are better, their abstinence and remission outcomes are better, and they're more likely to be employed five years later than people who come in more voluntarily. Um, and so the criminal justice system can do, they can be a great ally because they can help people who would not ordinarily seek treatment out themselves. They can get access, they can help them get access to treatment, destabilize uh, an emerging or growing addiction pattern and help them get into remission earlier or sooner and recover uh, more quickly and have a better longer-term outcome. We do know that people who get treatment earlier actually uh, have a much shorter time to remission, and the criminal justice system can play a very important role in doing that, helping people do that. But because the, the way that you know interventions are implemented in the criminal justice system, it can be very idiosyncratic. It can be left up to the whim of one particular, uh, re as I said, one particular town system. There's no universal uh, strategy right. that's being applied as a best practice. You know, what is the best practice, uh, and how do we implement that? Um, for people in in Massachusetts, for example. Hmm. So, what what kind of feedback do you receive, if any, from from twelve step communities regarding your research? And that's sort of hard well, to do based on the anonymity piece. But what, what kind of uh, what kind of feedback do I get on the on the research? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I don't really hear a lot of, of from the 12-step community itself in terms of, um, you know, the research findings. But um, indirectly, I, I mean, I, 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 I give talks all over the country, all over the world. Um, you know, I was in London. I gave a, a whole day's worth of lectures in, in, in Great Britain last year because the National Health Service now, which is, you know, a, a big national health care system, obviously, in Britain, I've had it for a long time since the Second World War. Um, they're very invested in in, in quality and cost um, because they are a national healthcare system. And what they're doing now with their new strategy is actually now incorporating uh, mutual aid, what they call mutual aid over there, which is essentially mutual help, which is helping patients get to AA and NA or Smart Recovery or other mutual help groups in Great Britain because they know now the science is, is so strong that even the National Health Service in Britain is saying, we've got to do this too. So I was over there doing a day long, whole day long worth of lectures um, to help transfer the science base to these practitioners and policymakers and administrators over there. And I actually spoke at Parliament too to do the same thing in, in Great Britain. Um, uh, so, you know, kind of getting, getting this information out there. Um, to the community, I mostly do that through uh, through scientific enterprises or sometimes through through magazines and um, conferences which are attended by uh, clinicians who uh, oftentimes are in recovery themselves so indirectly this message gets out but i 'm not sure if it gets out to the more broad base. I think as either Catherine or you Amanda mentioned earlier that um, even in 12-step, the 12-step community itself, it's unsure of the data that is actually supporting it. Uh, it's not clear, and of course, it's not. You know, I don't think I don't think AA was ever, you know, interested in in that particular aspect of it. Of course, but but although they were interested, I think initially, you know, they did document some some of their outcomes in the, in the the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. 
um, but they've never been that interested in, in the actual scientific support of it. Uh, even though there is now, as I mentioned, the last 25 years, there has been hundreds of studies now published uh, on 12-step, on, on AA in particular, uh, supporting it, its, its beneficial effects in the short term and in the long term. Uh, well, I, think, I, um, I think... Go ahead, Catherine. Well, I, I was just thinking kind of, you know, along the scene that we're always talking about on the show of, of encouraging people to reach out and there's there's a variety of um, mutual help groups and programs out there so that you can find one that, that fits you. I mean, I think it's helpful to kind of recap what Dr. Kelly is saying. The science indicates that, you know, if we're, we have this protective wall of human community then, you know, we learn these coping skills with relapse risk, um, confidence in social situations and dealing with emotional upheavals such as depression. And then the value of prayer and meditation, which, you know, the, the meditation piece is well documented in the scientific community as far as I know about the, the health benefits of it. Um, and then just staying close to community. I think that's something that I really hope that our listeners can take away from this so that, if anybody's out there thinking to themselves, oh, gosh, I, you know, I'm not sure how I feel about going to a meeting, um, you know, hopefully this is this is encouraging for people, especially our, our scientifically-minded uh, friends. Yeah, I think so. And the other thing to remember is that there are, there are other mutual help organizations, you know, there are other than 12-step. One of them is that's growing is, is Smart Recovery, which is a cognitive and behaviorally based um, mutual help group, which started back in the 80s, and it's been growing um, steadily since. Uh, it doesn't have the kind of empirical support, the kind of research support that AA has, but I would say that those groups are probably similar. They confer probably a similar level of benefit. Um, for people who go and get involved and participate in smart recovery because many of the same dimensions are there. They don't have the spiritual aspect, but they have that, that group camaraderie, the group support, the, the kind of those, those kind of uh, uh, social aspects are very strong in any of these mutual help organizations, and there are a lot of them around the country. So I would encourage people to, if AA or NA or 12-step doesn't fit, to, to try other other free mutual help groups that are around, and you can look them up online, uh, find out where the local meetings are, and go check them out because, you know, this is a life and death issue, um, yeah. and uh, you know it's, it's deadly serious business. And these groups can really play a very very valuable role for free, round the corner from where you live. Um, and one of the things about mutual help is that they're often available at times of high risk, like weekends, evenings, and holidays, when professional care is often not available. And, uh, you know, so so I would definitely encourage, just to echo and amplify your point, uh, is, that, is to try out, you know, whatever it is, it's going to help. Check it out. Try it out. And if it, if it works, wonderful. If it doesn't, try something else. Yeah, we have a link on our website, thebubblehour.com, for our listeners. If you look at the resources tab, there are links to, I think, three or four different mutual help 
groups, um, Alcoholics Anonymous being one of them, uh, but Life Ring, Smart Recovery, I think Women, uh, is it called Women in Sobriety? Women in um, Sobriety, yeah. Yes, thank you. Um, so, so you know, listeners, you can check that out. And I always encourage people to try at least three meetings um, because the first one, in my experience, is just weird. Um, you know, we all feel a little uncomfortable in early recovery. So I'm just right. speaking as, a, as an alcoholic to other alcoholics who might be listening. I'm not a doctor, but it's a little weird. So just, just go and, you know, give it at least three three tries and I have a, a friend um in in recovery who says that it's the best show in town for a buck. You know, so <laughs> throw a dollar in the basket <laughs> and see what happens. <laughs> Very true. Oh well this has been a fantastic show, Doctor Kelly. Thank you so much. Um do you have any any last comments that you'd like to add or we're at the end of our time here. And uh, so I was going to wrap it up. Is there anything else that you would like to add? I don't think so. Uh, you know, I would just say again. You know, try and you know, uh, if you if you if you are yourself or know someone who's suffering, is to you know is to reach out and 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 try and get some help and get some support because it's a lot easier when you've got. Uh, someone else to to help you and talk it through with you and really that's what we're talking about tonight in the sense of mutual help and you know there's been this push uh the other thing about uh, mutual help is that at least in the 12-step community people recognize that you need recovery support recovery monitoring recovery management over the long term because we do know that this is a chronic it's a chronic illness um, for, you know, especially for these people who have more severe and complex forms of the illness, typically those who come into treatment and those who are involved in AA and groups like that, is that you need ongoing support and somebody that can, somebody that you can be accountable to, somebody that you feel that, a community that you feel that you're a part of over the long term. AA recognized this decades ago that the people with addiction need this long-term recovery management recovery support and if you do that the chances of relapse diminish if you if you're involved in this kind of long-term recovery support and of course that's really the basis of AA is providing this network that you can become embedded in and change your lifestyle makes it much more conducive so uh, that's the other thing about this recovery management you know one of my colleagues uh, Dr. Keith Humphreys, who's a professor at Stanford, you know, he basically, you know, he always says that, you know, AA is the grandfather of recovery management. You know, it really was the first recovery management paradigm that really showed and helped people to stay in recovery, stay in remission over over months, years, and decades because uh, people felt that they uh, that was the way to go. They, they learned themselves uh, that that was the way to do it. Yeah, and, and and there are so many other programs that are modeled after twelve step recovery, and that you know they you know even you know smoking cessation, weight loss programs, you know it's you know right. it's, it's you know about mutual help, um, you know community, and I mean I know I know for myself that is that's probably the, the number one thing for me is you know having you know exactly everything that both you and Catherine have said, you know just you know being accountable and having a community, it's 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 critical. And and, right. and and you know and the, the best part is it makes life fun, 
you know, it 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 makes mm-hmm. it makes something that you know um, is very challenging and difficult, especially in the beginning. Um, it you don't feel like an outcast anymore. You know, you don't feel like you know there's something wrong, and and you know it just it um. I don't know. It's it's a great feeling. You know, I do hope that this this show and this topic will encourage people to give it a try. You know, there's you know there's many people out there who have tried tried many different things, and you know they you know they oh, well no matter what I'm not going to go to a a 12 step program. You know, I hope you know that the science will show that it could really help you, and that they uh, will give it a shot. This is. Um, this has been fantastic. It, it, you know, it really, really interesting information. Um, so, there's there's the science, folks. Um, you know, it does work. Um, okay, all right. I guess I will wrap up the show. And Dr. Kelly, I'm going to find that I, I'm that I wanted to put your your site on our page as a resource, and I'm just trying to think of a header. Um, to to uh, we have different categories on there. One is resources, one is blogs, and I'm just trying to, to, you know, just something to make it flow on there but so that can people can find you easily. But we will have the link to recoveryanswers.org um, on the show when we post it. And cool. as we... Um, and we'll um, certainly have you back on again uh, to, for another... You know, I know there's tons of things that you have to talk about, and it's always a great conversation. Thank um, you. I'd be delighted to come back anytime, and thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Uh, it was a pleasure to have you. I'm losing my voice now, too. <laughs> so, <laughs> All right. So okay. as we sign off, um, as we do with every show, we'd like you to direct you to Shining Strong's website, which is shiningstrong.org. There you will find links to our all of our resources, including the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now, and links to some other initiatives we are involved with with our recovery advocacy. And if you would like to go directly to the Bubble Hour's website, that is bebubblehour.com, and there you can listen to our shows directly from the website, or you can follow a link to subscribe to our podcast. We thank you all for listening to the Bubble Hour and hope you have a great evening. Good night, everyone, and good night, Dr. Kelly. Good thank night, you. Catherine. Thank you both. Good night. Thanks, Thanks Amanda. Thanks, Doctor. Bye. Uh, yeah, bye-bye.